darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night. The spirit you made me see. I swore I knew the way on my own. A head full of rocks, a heart made of stone. The spirit you moved into me. And now you're touch. Church is one foundation. 
Christ alone. reading of God's word. We uh, stand in honor of God and his inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, perfect, conscience-binding, eternal word. 
We'll be reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You may be seated. This morning as we, we pray, we're going to remember the junior and senior hires and the uh, uh, leaders who went up to Hume Lake this morning, but also we're going to um, remember our, our missionaries, Ed and Carla Trenner. Uh, they work through On Mission um, Partners and are working here in the local community. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you are and all that you've done in and through our lives. Father, we know that without Christ, we would be nothing. We constantly turn our own way. We try and satisfy ourselves rather than be, find our satisfaction in you. Lord, please forgive us. We need your forgiveness in order to have full and complete and full lives. Father, we thank you for what you're doing through the ministry here at Grace Church and throughout the world. We thank you for Ed and Carla Trenner, who serve you faithfully, who serve you with exuberant, joyful energy, giving of their, their very lives. They serve you and love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would continue to cause their, their ministry to flourish and to bear much fruit. Lord, we pray for those who are going to Hume Lake this week. We pray for safety as they travel. We pray for their unity while they're at camp. Father, we pray that for those who are there that do not know you, you would cause them to come to faith, open their eyes, enlighten their hearts, draw them to yourself. And for those who have been redeemed by you, Lord, we pray that this would be a time that they grow in faith, that they deepen their walk with you, that they commit themselves even more to prayer, to your word, to the body of Christ, and to prayer and confession. Father, we thank you for all that you've done through our lives. We commit ourselves, heart, mind, body, and soul to you. And for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Join us in singing Sovereign Air.
sovereign, um, trustworthy, faithful God of all history. At your pleasure, empires rise and fall, um, and yet in Jesus Christ, you have made um, this amazing supernatural condescension um, to be united with human flesh, um, to die on our behalf, and um, to rise victorious over death. And we celebrate you today. Um, We rest in you. We ask for help to, to worship and to know you better. Praise you that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in your image, and that through this time we might get to know your word and live it better because of it. We just thank you for all these things, and in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we are in verse 15 today, helping to hold on. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, 
Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. We should go to those great lengths to reach others for Christ. But what about fellow believers? What about the church? We don't want to be guilty of being like those companies that only treat new customers well. We must go out of our way to help each other in the church to hold on to the truth, to willingly spend and be spent for each other's souls, to help each other hold on. That glorifies Christ. It answers his John 17 prayer that we would be one. Here you have mere months after writing 1 Thessalonians, Paul still in Corinth, gets word that things had gotten worse. They had been despairing over troubles. They were shaken up by false ideas about the the Lord's return. And some were even using Christ's return as a reason not to work. Like, hey, Jesus is coming back soon. I don't need to go to my job. Paul sounds the alarm. 2 Thessalonians is really, Paul, sound the alarm to remain steadfast and persevere until Christ returns. Keep doing what you're called to do as you're navigating painful problems, as you're navigating persecution, as you're battling false teaching, as you're battling false living. Chapter 1 described coming judgment. We saw that, and it's coming. Chapter 2 clarifies the day of the Lord. And then when we get into chapter 3, it's going to prescribe discipline for those who refuse to work. The church of of the Thessalonians were progressing through the pain. They were continuing on. They had their problems, like all of us do, because we're humans in a sinful world. We're sinful humans in a sinful world. And their persecutions that they were enduring for faith in Christ, and it was proof of God's preserving of them. It was It was proof of the persevering church. God's righteous judgment is coming, but believers have blessing reserved by God for them. The judgment is coming. It will be fierce. It will be final. It's forever and fair. It's been sovereignly decreed. But what we see that the church is supposed to do is pray for the will of God. Pray for the will of God that he would make all believers worthy of their calling that he would fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power for his glory. And we're talking here about a well-taught church. We're talking about a church that had the apostle Paul with them for several months. But he leaves and they receive contradicting info. And so what chapter 2 does is literally give a flood of truth, just washes over them. A flood of truth so that the church would not be fearful, so that the church would not be false. He says, let no one deceive you. He's saying, like, everything's going according to plan. Don't be so agitated. You know, open up your Bibles and be transformed by the renewing of your word, by the Spirit, through the word of God. God is sovereignly orchestrating history. It's it's going according to his plan, and he has planned certain events to happen before Christ's return. The day of the Lord will be preceded first by the rebellion and then by the revealing and the restraining of the man of lawlessness. And God has 
done this and he will do what he says and even now he is restraining the man of lawlessness and all of the things that are going on now are in light of the fact that for believers he has reserved glory for you. Like there is reserved in heaven a inheritance. He's reserved a beautiful glorious future for every believer but the hard truth we have to admit is that at the same time because that is true he has reserved destruction for the unbelieving who would not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And the, the truth we have to grapple with is as great and glorious as it will be for believers, it will be just as bad for the unbelieving. Pulls apart, uh, completely opposing destinies. Well, that is uh, ample instigation for us to reach people with the gospel, to, to have the teeth of our exertions set such that we are, are uh, resolute in, in sharing the gospel with people because we don't want people to end up like that. And what you see in this passage we're in now is that in the middle of all that, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the problems, in the middle of the persecution, he is he's building up his bride Christ is building up his bride as Paul is helping the church, the church, these objects of God's sovereign grace and covenantal love. He's helping the church to hold on, to remain steadfast. I love the verses we're in. In fact, that's why we're in the same verse again. Next week, we'll go on to verses 16 and 17, but I love these verses, verses 13 to 17, and it, it just starts with praise for what God does, praise for his providence, praise for him loving believers and choosing believers to be saved and sanctified, calling believers by the gospel to share Christ's glory. And all because of that, you see this plea to hold on to God's promises in verse 15. So then, brothers, brothers and sisters, brethren, so then, because of all of that beautiful glorious work that God does. Don't sit back and relax and wait for it all to just unfold. No, he says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm and hold to the word of God. Next week, we'll look at the, the prayer in verses 16 and 17 uh, that God would do exactly what he said he will do. But believing friends, you stand firm and you hold on when you keep Christ central, when you keep the word as your compass. And I want to take some more time today to, to really think that through a bit and, and look at verse 15 and focus on it again and explore how the church can do this together because it's written in plural to the church. How the church can help each other hold on. How we can help each other Hold to the truth and stand firm in it. And how do you process that in helpful ways? We must help each other hold on to the truth. I know last week I had you look at each other. I might do it again. You might have to realize there's someone besides you and your loved ones and friends that you're sitting around and that this is the group, this is the church this is the body of believers in which God intends for you to help hold on. 
Now, if this is your first time, I didn't just commit you to a lifetime sentence at Grace Church, okay? If this is your church, this is the place God wants you to help others hold on to the truth. And what I want to do is address it from several vantage points. First, what do we do? What do we do to help each other hold on to the truth? That's the first thing. But secondly, who do we help? Who is it? What kind of people are we interacting with? And and what kind of people are we? And then third, how can we be as godly as we can be as we do it? So, first, the idea of what do we do? Secondly, how do you interact with each other? Who is it that we're interacting with? And then third, what are some helpful ground rules as we engage in this helping each other hold on? So verse 15, and what it does is it solidly lands on the, the primary concern, really, of this passage of Scripture is the stability of the church, that the church would be stable and steadfast in the midst of false teaching. They would stand firm so that everything that has been stated already, uh, the events preceding the day of the Lord, all the great things that God has done regarding their election, their calling, he now exhorts them, you stand firm and hold the word of God. Don't let it go. This is a call to be constant. It is a call to be stable and steadfast. Why is that so important? Because that's pretty much the primary concern that we have when we work with new believers and seasoned believers, that people would stand firm and hold to the word of God in their life. A believer's life is characterized by faith in Christ and beholding the glory of Christ in the gospel. And, and the call to stand firm is like all the way through the New Testament. Romans eleven twenty. 20, speaking of God's covenant people, Israel, and it says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, the church, stand fast through faith. And, and then he says, and don't become proud about it. Don't go, oh, we're better. No, fear, reverence God. Be, be rejoicing and trembling in the gospel goodness. You stand fast by your faith. To the Romans, in chapter 14, he said, look, and this is in the context of passing judgment sinfully on each other, something every Christian knows about. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another before his own master he stands or falls? And he will be upheld because the Lord is able to make him stand. Christian, you stand today because God makes you stand on your own strength. And when I say stand, I don't mean like standing upright, but even that is in God's strength. I mean standing firm in the faith. In Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, This is for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't go back to your old life. Don't go back to your old sins. Stand firm. To the Philippians, he said, let your life be worthy of the gospel. And again, this is all in the plural. This is all about the church. Let your life collective be worthy of the gospel so that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, united, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, holding the word together. He says later in Philippians, Philippians 4.1, my brothers whom I love, my brothers and sisters, love and long for my joy and crown Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He cares so much for the church. He wants them to hold on together. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 8, in the midst of all the opposition that they were you know, enduring, 
Here's what Paul and his companions confidently exclaim. He says, now we really live. Like our life is great now because you are standing firm in the Lord. Think about all the things you exclaim that your life is great because everything worked out this way or that way or whatever. How many times have you rejoiced in the, in the strength of fellow believers? You say, wow, you know what? You know what really makes my day? When my fellow Christians in my local church do well in Christ, when they follow the Lord, when they, they love the Lord, when they, when they fellowship well together, when they, when they please the Lord. How many times do we root for someone to fail? How many times do we just, you know, not like someone in the body and go, you know, I don't really care what happens to them. How often are you rejoicing that God is actually causing your brothers and sisters in Christ, in this church, to thrive in Christ? Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. It was a call to stability, to faithfulness. In light of their problems, you're standing firm in the Lord, you're constant, you're stable, and, and all these things in the faith, in the church, in one spirit, in the Lord. You're remaining steadfast in the Lord in, in spite of persecution and satanic attacks. He's telling the church this. He's telling them your faith, your love, your hope, encourage the church. But it's interesting in the verse we're looking at today. There's a nuance to it. In, in verse 15 here, so then, my brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us. The word of God. It's, it's in the context of chapter 2. His concern for the church is that they would hold on in the word that they had received, in the doctrine that they had been taught. And it's a double exhortation. Stand firm and hold on to. Stand firm. He doesn't use the normal, uh, ordinary word for standing there. What he uses is a less usual term, and it, it, it conveys uh, the idea of a firm stance and a steadfastness and a taking of a stand that doesn't budge. And the reason a Christian can do that is because the Word of God does not budge. The Word of God doesn't change. So you can stand firm and know that God's not going to change the rules midway through the game. God is specifying, here's what you hold on to. The traditions, literally, the teachings. And we looked at this last week. It's not the traditions of man. It's not the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's God's word that you were taught. And he even said, we gave a spoken word, we gave a letter. The idea behind this is that the, the prominent idea is the authority outside of the one teaching it. It's God's authority. The gospel is not of human origin. God's word was delivered, once for all given. It's authoritative. He's not talking about anything outside the Bible. He's talking about everything that was given before the, the collection, the canon of Scripture was set. And he says, you hold fast the teachings received from the apostles. He's talking about the New Testament. He's saying this is what was given to the church from God. It's authoritative because it's from God, and it's the word that you were taught. It's the very word that when you come to faith in Christ, you're integrated into the body of Christ as members of God's family by adoption. And you know that by the word of God, and the church is now to maintain the teaching without swerving and to hold on to it and to pass it on. This is the will of God. Now what the Pharisees criticized Jesus for was you don't hold to our traditions to our man-made rules. You don't hold to the traditions of man. 
But you know what the word of God does? You know what the authoritative word of God does? It reorients the church to the lordship of Christ over everything. While everyone else is going independent and making up their own ideas, the, the unchanging word of God reorients the church to the lordship of Christ, the authoritative word that the Spirit inspired. And he's telling them, you know, look, the return of Christ may be near. Christians in every time, in every place must always think that. The imminent return of Christ. The return of Christ may be near. And since the return of Christ is near, and since you are so sure of your salvation, you can stand against all falsehood. You have assurance. We're not talking about the ancient sayings of men handed down. We're not talking about your family fables. We're not talking about generational, you know, stories that get passed down. We're talking about the word of God that was given. And, and we're to hold to the truth as a church. Be biblical Christians. No compromise. Loyal to the word. Remain steadfast. It's the only way to resist false teaching. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says this. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, just like it says in verse 15 here, hold to what you've been given, stand firm in the faith, literally stand firm with the word of God, and then it says, act like men. All the women are like, what about us? This is act like men, not animals. Men and women, act like humans, not animals. Stand firm in the faith. Be strong in the Lord. And he says, let all you do be done in love. Because human beings, made in the image of God, can know Christ and then make choices that are pleasing to God. You must contain, continue firmly, faithfully, in the word of God, holding on to it without wavering, even in the face of contrary opinions. And some of you are like, yeah, but I feel like I'm just holding on by a thread. This is where it's good to know what God has done. He chose you because you're beloved to be saved and sanctified. He called you by the gospel so that you would share the glory of Christ. He's holding on to you. You might feel like, I'm too weak, I can't do this. I, I, I feel like every day, it's like, it's just a struggle to get up and even think of a Bible verse. I know, that's, this is our life. This is, our, this, is, this is what it means to be a Christian living in the world. He's telling them, why would he tell them if it wasn't a trouble, if it wasn't a struggle, if it wasn't so tough? Stand firm and hold on. And, and what we see is that God's grace drives our response. It's the grace of God that encourages us. You're beloved in Christ. You're chosen. You're called to obtain eternal glory. That is what inspires you to a faithful commitment to Christ and his word and to his people and to hold on together and to not let go. And we're to do this together. We're to do this together. I might make you look at each other again. We were to do this together. The church was to be actively involved in helping one another hold on. Not coming in going, I'm, I'm doing this on my own. Everybody else is on their own. I got a better grasp than they do. No, help each other hold on to the faithful word. Help the people that bug you. Help the people that annoy you. Help the people that have hurt you. 
help everyone in the church to hold on. We do it collectively in our gatherings. We do it as we scatter throughout the week. This was written to the church. And you know why Paul is so confident about it? You know why he's so confident that this can happen? Because God holds it all together. He holds all things together by the word of his power. The reason why he's confident in the Thessalonians' stability is because he's confident in God's stability. He's unchanging. He's writing this to the church in plural. You've got to apply it plurally. And I know this is tough for us in the, in, in the Western church to not think just so individualistically. Yes, you've got to bring it into your own heart and mind, but you've got to do this together. Stand firm, hold on together. We need to help and be helped to hold on to the word of God. We have to explore how we can do this together. And it's going to take us back to 1 Thessalonians. It takes us back to the first letter, how we could apply this. And the first place I want to take you is in chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verses 7 and 8. These are like my favorite Oh, I, I hate to say favorite verses in the Bible, but these are like my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, I'm, I'm like, the reason I say that is because I think of them so often in life and ministry and everything just blends together. And uh, it's the idea, uh, here's what it says. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being effectually desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. What a beautiful picture. They were to do this together, hold on together, help each other hold fast to the faithful word of God, confident in God's ability, and they needed to help and be helped by one another. And, and the first, to answer the question, how do we do it? It's really wrapped up in this verse. With people, with, with, even with prayer and with preaching, that we help each other through first, personal interaction. Personal interaction. Secondly, I'm gonna show you through First Thessalonians even, prayer, and then third, preaching of the word. But first, personal interaction, because really, he says this. He goes, look, we, we loved you so much. You became this way to us. This wasn't just natural affinity here. This was supernatural. God gave you a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the normal body life for believers is personal. Where you are of one mind, that doesn't mean you all think the same thing. It means you're unified around the gospel. How the beloved of God in Christ become beloved to one another as they actively serve Christ and wait for his return. That's what this letter is all about. It's like adoption. You get adopted into your family and you go, wow, I got parents. And I got brothers and sisters. You didn't choose them. You got put into a family. Therefore, you love them. And you learn to love them even more and more. It's like an arranged marriage. By the way, a lot of those last a long time. Arranged marriage. It's like, this is what we're going to do. And, and we're going to be beloved, and we're going to stick for the long haul. Now, that's never a perfect picture in the church. It's a prescribed picture. And in context, it's sinners fighting their sin and wanting to please God. Why is there so much re relational teaching in the Bible? Because there's people involved. 
In 1 Thessalonians, it's all the way through. I mean, Galatians 5, don't bite and devour one another. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, plural. 1 Peter 3, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but rather give a blessing instead. We sometimes struggle with relationships in the body of Christ. We know it's true. It's the understatement of the year. Some people you are struggling with now in this church, you, they, 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 they bug you. They, they've hurt you. They've annoyed you. They've, and maybe it's happened for a long time. If this is your first Sunday and you're saying that, we need to talk afterwards. But seriously, we struggle with relationships in the body of Christ. We've been adopted into a family that we didn't choose, and we like to choose the way things go. What you need to do is lay aside your differences. That doesn't mean ignore issues. It means focus on each other's growth in Christ. It means this. Make their best your concern. When was the last time you thought this way? That my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ at Grace Church, my concern is their thriving in the Lord. I'm not thinking about what everyone's not doing for me. I'm not thinking about what everyone's done to me. What I'm thinking about is how can I help you? If you think that way, you'll be able to do what this verse says. Make their best your concern. Help others grow in Christ. Now, I know that some people treat people like things. And I know that some people treat things like people. What you need to do with people is cherish people. Not just the ones that you have that natural affinity for and that you naturally just like or love. Some of you are like, I I can't do it. I know. Either can I. Unless I'm doing it in Christ's strength and for his glory. Where I, where I cherish people and I treasure them and I hold them dear so that, therefore I want to help them hold on. That I would be willing to spend and be spent for their souls without a thank you, without an apology, without an acknowledgement, without a recognition that I would just do it to hear well done, good and faithful servant one day in glory. Then we help each other hold on to the word of God when we cheer each other on, not when we stand and say, you know, I don't like the way that one's going. I remember running races, uh, track races and cross-country races in my high school years and there were plenty of times where I felt like I couldn't go on and that my legs were, were dead and that my lungs were going to burst. And especially in cross-country races, what I remember so often was a familiar face that had come to watch me run and to cheer me on. Or sometimes I didn't see them, but I heard a familiar voice that was saying, you can do it. 
as the years went on, when I, when I got into my 30s, actually, I, started, I kept running races. But they were the kind of races, I guess, that didn't mean as much. And we weren't as competitive with one another. And so my fellow runners and I would cheer each other on in the middle of a race. That's the picture. Where you would, you would cheer one another on and, and let them know you're rooting for them and that you, you, they can hold on because you're there to help them hold on. And it couldn't come at a better time when everybody's getting torn apart and split apart and fractured by, by so many things. Personal interaction. Secondly, prayer. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 and 3. Here's how it starts. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They're praying for them. Do you realize that when you acknowledge that you're depending on God, when you depend on God and trust him, and you're exercising faith by praying, you are expressing that God is the only one that can help. He's the only one that can truly help them and you. It's, it's like 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The, the Thessalonian church was yielded like that. Mostly yielded like that. That's what we want to be. Mostly yielded like that. To God, to his will, to his word. We've eagerly welcomed it, and, and, and we have great comfort while navigating life. And in, in an ungodly culture and ungodly hearts in our own hearts often and, 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 a, and a world that advocates a sinful lifestyle. A world that, for the Thessalonians and for us that thinks us crazy for holding a biblical ethic. An anti-God, anti-life, anti-authority time. They lived in that kind of time too. It might have been worse. You look at 1 Thessalonians 3. Verses 11 and 12, here's a prayer. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, that he would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's the church getting prayed for to help each other hold on. And then you get into chapter 5, and it's rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Church, do this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, they say, to this end we always pray for you, church, plural, church. We're praying for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, all for the glory of God. Nothing for the, for the fame of anyone else but God. Their, their concern was for God to be glorified in his church. That was what they were into. Back in Exodus chapter 17, you see a picture where Moses is holding up his hands. 
And while this is in the, in the middle of a battle that Israel is battling and Amalek, the Amalekites, and they're battling, and it says that when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Holding up the hand described the Israelite posture of prayer. It's like we would bow our heads or fold our hands, and Moses, it says, kept on praying. It was a life and death situation in the middle of this battle and their fate in battle depended on Moses' prayer and when he prayed, they prevailed and when he stopped, Amalek prevailed. In fact, at one point, his arms got so tired and heavy as his arms got heavy, he couldn't hold them up any longer and so Aaron and Hur came up and supported his arms with their own and propped him up together. What a great picture of the church helping each other with their prayers. And and supporting the battle in prayer was difficult. It was hard work. Paul talks about Epaphras' ministry. And he says, he's always laboring fervently for you in prayer. That's why Colossians 4.2 tells us, we must continue earnestly in prayer. Praying for each other, vigilant in it with thanksgiving. It's the whole church praying. You see it in Acts 12. The whole church praying. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Prayer. And by the way, we're not praying little baby prayers to a little baby God. We're not praying little puny prayers to a little puny God. No, no, no. We're supposed to be praying big prayers to a big God who has given us a big word for his big family. We're to be praying outside of ourselves. We're to be praying beyond what we could even ask or think because God can do immeasurably more than we could ask or think. How big are your prayers? How big is your God? Come boldly to the throne of grace because he is our father. We pray your will be done. Do you realize what you're praying when you say your will be done? You're saying, Lord, it's okay if my will is undone. It's okay if I don't get what I want. I want what you want more. We should want what God wants more for the church. Personal interaction, prayer, and then preaching the word to our own hearts, to our friends, to our families. And and that starts with a plain reading of the Bible. Just a plain, straight-up reading of the bare word of God where you don't read in meanings that aren't apparent and you look for authorial intent. What did God mean? You use a, what's known as a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic meaning. The words actually matter, and it is true, and it is from the time that it was given, and we handle the word like the Bible faithful handled it, like the apostles read it and preached it. And what do they do? They, they read it. They took it at face value, and they laid that beside loving relationships and prayer for each other where they accepted people because they were in the body together, not because they felt like it, 
but because God brings it about, that he gives you a love for each other in the body where you do life together, where you share your life and the word of God and people become very dear to you. Again, not because there's natural affinities and not because there's never been an injury, but because you know that your life is wrapped up in the word of God, everything it says, and Christ is your life, and he has put you in his body, if you're a believer, and, and you, need, you need the reminders because we leak, and, and, and we go together faithfully, we come together, and we scatter together in smaller groups, and it's not to get, we don't come every week to get something new and juicy, but to be reminded. Eugene Peterson put it this way, preaching is a ministry of reminding. You did not know this before you got here. You knew that life in the body of Christ must be together. You knew that you should personally interact with each other. You knew that you should pray for each other root for each other, help each other hold on. You knew that the word of God is paramount in that process. You knew you need to receive the truth, not fight it, not twist it, not come up with novel interpretations off of your worldview, but, be sh- but let the church be shaped by the Bible. Expository preaching keeps the mind of Christ in front of the church. You go just line by line, verse by verse. Such that the Lord of the church would have sway over his church. A couple weeks ago, the Southern Baptists had a convention right here in uh, Anaheim, and a guy named Juan Sanchez got up. I, I heard what he preached. It was right after, it was, it, it was really juxtaposed with what Rick Warren did where he just talked about himself what he had done and Juan Sanchez gets up and he says we cannot build on any other foundation but the word of God and that if our primary concern is merely church growth we will be tempted to build on other foundations on music on ministries on politics on social justice on personalities he says growth by something other than the word of God is not lasting nor God exalting and then he said what you win people with is what you win them to. We need to pray for each other. We need to preach the gospel to each other. We need to personally interact with people who are beloved of God in Christ and becoming more beloved because we actually take the time to get to know each other and we actually root for each other and our concern is for their good. Your concern is for each other's good. And uh, I would say, don't wait till you get asked. Don't wait till you feel like it. I will tell you, there, there's, there's hardly a day that I wake up and I feel like reading the Bible and praying. There's hardly a day that I feel like exercising. Seriously. But I've made it a practice that the first thing, my first act of the day is to open up my Bible and read it or listen to it because I know how much I need it. And prayer is not easy work and exercising or whatever else you do in life. It's, the good things in life are not easy. 
they're necessary. But who are we to help? You go, well, it's the whole church. Okay. Interestingly, that Paul is saying brothers and sisters, so everybody, male, female, young, old, entire congregation, right? But he's addressing the church to do something for the church. Hold on together to the word. So the body is to minister to the body. The body is to give timely counsel for various issues in various ways. In fact, we have really a, a, a hint here in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. Uh, he gives categories of the kind of people in the church that affect the church. And he speaks of the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak. And what he does is he prescribes a specific posture toward each group. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.14... We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everything. That's helping each other hold on. Warn the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, don't do evil, and you notice that there's different folks that need different help and tailored to their issues. There's the weak. And the weak want to hold on, but they're, they're weak. So they can't hold on. You've got to strengthen them. You've got to teach them. You've got to exhort them. You've got to encourage them. We're all weak. Some are weaker. Michael Emlet had a, has a book called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners, Loving Others as God Loves Us. And he says all people deal with two primary issues. You struggle with your identity you ask, what's my purpose? Who am I? And you struggle with evil. You struggle with evil inside, with sin, and you struggle from evil from the outside with suffering. And every Christian deals with identity and evil. And that the scripture shows us God meeting us in those moments and, and through our life and ministering to his people. That we're all saints and sufferers and sinners. That we're saints that need to be affirmed in our identity as God's children. And I'm not talking about universalism here. I'm talking about every Christian, okay? You know the context. In the church, you, you've, you've trusted Christ. You're not trusting yourself. You've trusted that Christ died for your sins in your place, and, and, he, wrote, and, he, and he was buried, and he rose from the dead on the third day, and he's coming back, and your life is wrapped up in Christ, and you've received forgiveness and new life. If anyone was in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things passed away. New things have come. But... God works with us to affirm our identity as God's children. He works with us in our suffering to comfort us in the midst of affliction. He uses the church in that regard, in both of these things. And he, and he helps sinners who need to be challenged in their sin due to God's mercies. It's all about God's mercies. Because of what God did, don't go there. Christ is so much better and greater and stronger than what you're desiring. Force yourself not to go to the bad place. We're all these three things. We're saints, we're sufferers, we're sinners. We're weak, he is strong. Help the weak, help. And then there's the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are, I put them in the worried category. They're, they're afraid to hold on. They're, they need courage, they need help. They need a challenge, they need to be spurred on. I often ask people who come to me for help and they're faint-hearted, they're worried and and I ask them, is there anything in your life right now that you're doing that you know you shouldn't be doing? 
And invariably, the answer is yes. And it's interesting when you say, well, stand firm and hold fast to the word. You also need to give up some things. And oftentimes, it's too easy to be on a crusade to prove others wrong or prove yourself right or to gloat or to despair or to push a political agenda or to coddle a pet sin or to reflect Christ's glory or to help those who are faint-hearted and and worried and encourage them. You'll notice there's the idol. Those that are idle, those that are not willing to pitch in and, and, and do anything good, and they're the wayward that don't want to. They don't want to hold on. They, they're wayward that, that you have to appeal to them. Admonish, correct, command, literally beg and plea. Like, don't push the truth away. Embrace it. Don't peddle lies. Don't turn others away from the truth. You know, in Titus 1.9, it talks about what elders are to do and we're to hold the trustworthy word as taught, we're to teach others, and then what every elder is afraid to do, refute those who contradict, that go self-willed. But this is for the church to do, and I say, church, don't give up. But don't give up too soon on people. Don't be too quick to say they were not of us Maybe there is someone who's wayward, who's running faster than you can chase them. And maybe even at some point they turn at you and on you and bare their teeth like a wolf. And you start wondering, are they a wolf? But don't be too quick to call them a wolf. Hurting people hurt people. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. But don't be too quick to write them off. Keep trying. It's like when you watch the, the police chase on TV or on, in a movie and, and there's a police chase and invariably there's, there's one police car that's chasing down the perpetrators and they're, they're gaining on them but they can't quite catch them. What do they do? They radio for help. And then out of the blue, you know, the other car like cuts them off at the pass and then they jump out. Maybe they throw down the, the spike strip or something. Help the wayward hold on by admonishing them. Don't be afraid. Be patient with them. We've got to talk about wolves too, though. The wolves are the evil ones that are doing the evil. They want to devour you. Don't pet the wolf. Don't try to give the wolf a snack. It'll bite your arm off. You contend with the wolf. You don't give in to the wolf. Acts 20, Paul says, you know what? Savage wolves are coming that will not spare the flock. They will even come from inside the church. Don't do it. And, and by the way, there's only a few times in Scripture where you're told, don't associate. It, where you say, just don't do it. Well, Romans 16, it says this. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you were taught. Avoid them. Why? They don't serve Christ. They serve their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Don't play with wolves. Don't run with wolves. But there's one other group I want to bring up, and I think it it could be the largest group, the unaware. The unaware. The the ones who don't realize they're weak or wandering or looking like a wolf or acting like a wolf. And 
I always go back to 2 Timothy 2.19 that says, the Lord knows those who are his. But then it says this, whoever says they're his, whoever names the name of the Lord should abstain from evil, from wickedness. But there's a lot of people, I think, that get kind of blinded by the, the issues of their life. They don't see the rope. They don't see the life preserver. So they're not going to hold on. And if you're unaware, it's a scary place to be because probably the Spirit of God is being quenched or, or grieved and getting drowned out in the noises of your life. Very easy for us to get wrapped up in things that are not in line with the will of God and the Word of God. And I do think sometimes we underestimate the, um, the ruinous nature of our pet sins. I think of the parable of the sower and the seeds, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's, all, it's in all three of those. And there's different responses to the Word of God. And here's the groups you might engage, but there's the long-term effects of the response to the Word. And people are weak. People are worried. People are wandering. People are maybe wolf-like even and unaware. The biggest challenge you have right now is not to think of someone else. But to take responsibility, whatever condition you find yourselves in, to cheer others on, to hold on, to, to help them hold on, and go with truth, not lies. How do we help? Just want to bring out one or two primary things. How do we help? I think the best thing I could say is that, that you need to hold the truth with compassionate conviction. Compassionate conviction. I'm concerned about helping the church help each other hold on to the word and bring it to bear in our hearts and lives. But many of you would ask, and many Christians are asking now, how do I stand firm in a world that is throwing Pride Month or social justice or abortion or guilt in my face? How do you do that? And I would say, first and foremost, make sure you talk to yourself in a healthy way. Not a hateful way, not a, well, everyone's going to get what they deserve, blah, 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 blah. I've heard Christians speak so hatefully of other people, it's, and I've thought hateful thoughts. See, God's beautiful truth given is not ugly human resistance. I've been asked, how does a Christian respond to Roe v. Wade being overturned? And I would say you should respond with rejoicing. That in a moment where many devalue human life, God moved in a way to cause rational people to do good. And God puts people in authority and life's in his hands. And sometimes there's judgment. Sometimes there's blessing. Um, But don't be too quick to think, wow, we're living in the worst time ever. Every ancient civilization, culture spilled the blood of innocent children. Unwanted infants in Rome were abandoned outside the city walls to die of exposure or attacks by wild beasts. The Greeks gave pregnant women harsh doses of herbs and medicine to kill their babies. The Canaanites threw their children into fire as they sacrificed to Molech. The Egyptians, and I decided I wasn't going to tell you what they did because it's worse than all of that. They disposed of their unwanted children shortly after birth. And here's the startling thing. The ancient minds of Plato and Aristotle and Seneca and Cicero and others did not speak against it. They recommended it. And we think about Roe v. Wade and how it was seen as sacrosanct. I grew up 
in the time when it got put into, into action. And, but people are losing their minds because now it'll be tougher to kill babies. But don't be hateful to them. They're deceived, they're blinded, and they're doubling down on doing evil. You know, uphold the sanctity of life from a biblical perspective. It's an opportunity to, to speak into the conversation that life is sacred and the gospel is for all people. No matter what they've done or what they're going to do. And Christians must rejoice when good happens, not gloat, not be hateful. Not Here's what you need to do, trumpet the gospel call that all who trust Christ, will, who believe in Christ will be saved. And that human life made in God's image is sacred and the more people that are born, the more people to share Christ with. And we love all people made in God's image. But you gotta hold biblical convictions when you come to this topic of life. I think, I can't get out of my mind the picture of unborn baby John the Baptist rejoicing over unborn baby Jesus. Shortly after the virgin conception, the spirit revealed to Elizabeth that the fruit, the life in Mary's womb was there. She was already a mother. Early in the pregnancy of Mary, she's said to be with child because God affirmed a child in her when she became pregnant. And if you're wrestling with this, I would ask you first and foremost to pray for pregnant women and that they would draw near to Jesus and his followers would love and help them to see him. And then I would encourage you to give thanks to God who is the giver of life, the author of life, the fountain of life, the defender of life, the prince of life, the restorer of life, who gave us the message of life, the words of this life, the light of life, and he offers us new life. When you want to hold on to the truth, it must be spoken no matter how anyone takes it. It must be done lovingly. As one person once put it, truth seldom goes without a scratched face. Hold the truth with compassionate conviction. But most of all, worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Have the biggest view of God possible. Savor God's goodness in the gospel. Revere Jesus. You were made to delight in Christ. You were saved to delight in Christ. You were forgiven to delight in Christ. Jesus is greater than all, and we should live to the praise of his glory. And friends, I will just say this passage truly invigorates my heart. Uh, it starts with praise to God for what he has done and leads to a plea not to sit back, but to get involved in the nitty-gritty of what it means to live in Christ. The workings of God's providence doesn't cause you to sit back in an easy chair. It causes you to redouble your efforts and refocus your energies to help the church hold on and to reach the world with the gospel. And by the way, we haven't even gotten to the prayer yet. What do we do? We help each other through personal interaction and prayer and the preaching of the word. We help the weak, the worried, the wandering, the wolves, the wolf-like and the unaware. And we do it with compassionate conviction, above all, worshiping Jesus. Lord, we thank you and praise you that your book contains your mind, contains what we need to know. It tells us of the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. We thank you, Lord, that your doctrines are holy and precepts are binding and your histories are true and your decisions are unchanging. 
May we help each other hold on. May your word fill our memory and rule our heart and guide our feet. Lord, may we help each other hold on to truth. Help us to ask, who, who am I helping? Who's helping me? And no matter what, Lord, we know the stakes are high. We know the rewards are great. May we look to you and live in your strength and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand and join? We're going to close singing Blessed Assurance.
During first hour, I, I told a story. I kind of ran out of time for it, but I'll just give you the really brief uh, version. There was a pilot that was flying a little commuter plane, and he, uh, long story short, he got sucked out of the plane. And uh, so they were doing emergency landing, and they all thought he was a goner. Turns out he was holding on to the ladder outside the plane. He went for uh, 10 minutes, 4,000 feet altitude, 200 miles an hour, and held on. And they found him when they landed, and they had to pry his fingers off the ladder. And I just want to say, if, if you think you can't hold on, <laughs> trust God over your heart. Let's close with Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, we